welcome. My name is Joe Minnick, and if you're watching or listening to this, I'm grateful that you found your way through the infinite maze of the internet to this small corner where I dwell in cyberspace. It is a delight to have the opportunity to chat with you, albeit in a way that is a bit one-sided. Presumably, if you're watching this, you're interested either as a doubter or an outsider to the faith about the question of whether or not Christianity is still a plausible option in our contemporary world. The to this topic is obviously of great interest to me as well, given the title of this series. I've also done some public writing on this, particularly in my, my little book, Enduring Divine Absence, and I, and I recently had the exciting opportunity to expand some of those reflections in my, my dissertation on modern atheism at UT Dallas, a, a few miles from this living room where I'm filming right now. Behind academic interest, as you might well be aware, though, it, it is often personal and existential interest. That is to say, like, like many of you, I know what it's... Well, I know what it's like to feel like I don't know what I'm supposed to say that I know, and to wonder if all of this, this Christianity stuff is just history's greatest delusion, uh, a delusion which has nevertheless so shaped our, our patterns of thought that we can't get outside of its mental and imaginative habits. My hope then in this, this open-ended series is to, is to work through the basics and even maybe some of the tangentials of the Christian faith in a way that speaks to both those who are considering it from the outside, but also to those who are doubting it from the inside. And of course, it's worth saying I certainly don't claim to be able to have all, you know, the answers to all questions, but I have been around the doubt block a good number of times over the last 25 years. Sometimes I maybe find myself dwelling there despite my efforts. And so I hope I can I can speak with a special degree of sympathy for those in that condition, maybe even helping them name some of the ways in which they're feeling doubt in order to grapple with that doubt more honestly. One motivating factor behind this effort is my own conviction that persons in those situations are not, you know, finally lost, uh, and that they can even be honest and transparent with their doubts and questions and yet move from within that space psychologically and intellectually toward Christian truth and wisdom, whether in a, in a new way or in a renewed way. Maybe not without any tweaks to their inherited variety of the faith, mind you, but that's, that's okay. Uh, no ecclesiastical home is without the need for at least little tweaks and all belongers to a home are called what they have to give toward that effort when it's given in peace and goodwill. In this and future videos, then, my goal is to talk through crises of faith as well as through the, the plausibility of various doctrines, themes of scripture, or the Christian account of life in general. Uh, let me say for a moment, though, why I frame my pr approach in terms of the question of the, the kind, of, kind of metaphor plausibility. To frame the issue in terms of plausibility is to frame the issue in terms of what we can consider likely or unlikely to be the case. And I think this is a proper approach for a, for a couple of reasons. One, assuming that there's always more that could be said about a thing, and because most of us don't operate in the space of absolutely airtight arguments, factoring in all knowledge about anything, it seems that plausibility and the, and, and the notion of likelihood is where most of us actually dwell in our decision-making about most intellectual things. Most of us are far more ignorant than we realize and don't even know just how much we don't know. But this doesn't mean we can't achieve confident cognitive rest based upon reasonable first principles and an honest reading of the clear data points that we do have. And secondly, I think framing the issue in terms of plausibility accurately captures the role of the imagination in our working through these issues. Um, what we consider likely or unlikely to be the case, which is to say what we consider to be plausible, has a lot to do with the extent of our knowledge, uh, but has at least as much to do with our reflexive sense of what reality is or can be like. And it is precisely here that we often need to be to be reschooled to experience a renewed wonder. Uh, if nothing else, then I hope that these videos will make it a, a bit more difficult for some of you to fail to feel the pull 
of the Christian faith, even in its particulars. In this video, uh, I'm just going to speak about crises of faith in a more general way and, and try to gesture towards some initial steps that can be taken in the experience of having such a crisis. So let's let's look at this offsided phenomenon, the, the, you know, the crisis of faith, a phenomenon that is common enough that it is now a fairly prominent theme theme in a, a, a recent modern film. If you've ever seen films like you know, Higher Ground or Scorsese Silence or First Reformed, etc. From a sort of clinical perspective, a crisis of faith can be variously diagnosed. Doubt can arise from struggling with certain claims, like does God exist, or the problem of evil, or sexual ethics. But often doubt occurs in the context of disillusionment with Christian family or churches, and can also be triggered by significant life events or, or even transitional psychological states, such as a, a kind of intense depression or even a transitional state into an, a hereforto unknown happiness, oddly in some cases. But not surprisingly, of course, many crises of faith occur at some intersection of various of these forces. Crucially, however, because I don't think this is said often enough, it is entirely possible to have a largely intellectual crisis of faith that is not rooted in existential confusion, flirtation with old scratch, or ill will toward Jesus. So, so let's consider the example of someone who's comes from a, from a normal Christian background and is feeling less than ordinarily certain about certain big and basic Christian views. It's worth asking, what is the most immediate thing to be done? How should we respond to the, to the simple fact and experience of doubt? And for those who've been through this, you know well that the first step is not actually always that easy to discern because there's a lot of kind of active voices, as it were, when we find ourselves in a crisis. There's the, the voice in our head that says we ought to be concerned, uh, that is, that it's spiritually unsafe to be in a crisis. What, after all, if we, if we fall away is the proper response to, to simply assume we have sin that needs to be dealt with or that, or, or to, or to, or that our doubt reflects some implicit lack of trust in God? Is the first step then always a, to actively kind of repent ourselves back into a new confidence? Understandably, though, that response can dialectively raise another set of concerns. Is, is fearing the judgment that allegedly comes from getting the answer wrong or the more basic social consequences of possibly changing one's beliefs, hamming up our intellectual honesty? Can we satisfy that other little voice in our heads that accuses you only arrived at this conclusion because you need to out of fear of hell or social pressure or because the, of the safety of maintaining a particular identity, not because you truly listened to reality and to the evidence or, or paid attention to what it seems like to you when you aren't actively trying to make it fit your pre-digested ideology. If you have too many voices in your head, you might have bigger problems to deal with, but we're dealing right now with those who have an acceptable amount of mental specters floating around in their psyche. <laughs> For the unchurched, everything I, I said might not quite capture your own mental framework as, as you work through these questions. Perhaps you're just curious or maybe even slightly surprised that Christianity on a host of registers turns out to be something worthy of more serious attention than you might have heretofore given it. Uh, Tom Holland's recent book, Dominion, is a fun read, uh, you know, from somebody maybe in that camp. Uh, he's an atheist, but Holland nevertheless kind of finds himself a bit surprised by the depth of the Christian tradition, and, a, and even in, it, in its peculiarities. And another person we might think there is Jordan Peterson. Um, he's not really a classically Orthodox Christian, uh, but he nevertheless takes the Bible and the Christian tradition very seriously as a kind of dialogue partner in the investigation of reality. Uh, but in any case, whether, whether coming from, from the position of an insider or an outsider, there is overlap, I would argue, in, in the first step to be taken in working through these things. So let's take the, the risk analysis register of concern raised earlier, if I can call it that. Uh, it's not only Christians after all, who can see clearly that our instincts concerning what reality seems like might, even when our understanding feels obvious, turn out to be in tension with reality when reality is understood more fully. 
historians are especially attuned to this since they spend a lot of time, time trying to understand why certain things were plausible to our ancestors, often in a way that makes the historians themselves cautious about their own pet interpretive default settings. But beyond the, the question of mere ignorance, it is also not only Christians who can see clearly that self-deception plays a role here. Indeed, self-deception is a frequently portrayed theme of much modern, good modern literature and pop culture. Um, and so even with just ordinary observation, it is clear that there is a humility to be had and a caution about overtrust in our, in our own instincts. But this is only a piece of the pie, because whether, whether we like it or not, it just simply is the case that you aren't sure what you're not sure of, and that you in fact doubt. Even if you think you shouldn't doubt, and even if you've gone through the motions of trying to kind of will yourself into confidence or certainty, and even if you do so based upon the conclusions of the mind, it nevertheless just sometimes is the case that we don't feel like certain truths are clear, or, or we deeply sense the smallness and the, and the limitation with which we grasp anything at all. And, and even with the observations above, it's not always obvious that this doubt is ill-motivated. It might be more often than you think it is, and that is a crucial point to make and to consider, but it's not necessarily so. But even if it is, it isn't as though God can't absorb this. John the Baptist once doubted whether Jesus was the Messiah he claimed to be, and the response of Christ was not to tell him, you know, sort of go work on your sin habits, <laughs> but, but rather to give him good reasons to think that he was the Messiah. In other words, sin or not, Christ met John just where he was at in the space of doubt. And we have good reason to think then, I think, that, that God can do this with our doubts of such a nature as well. Of chief importance here is that no sane path through a crisis could ever pressure you to be dishonest with where you're actually at. The Christian path is a path of truth. And so one way of helping yourself navigate the risk side of this issue is to, is to simply decide that you will not lie to yourself about your confidence levels or your actual knowledge. You know what you know, you do not know what you don't know. You're certain of what you're certain of. You're uncertain of what you are uncertain of. Right or wrong, that is simply the truth. And no path of wisdom can circumvent the truth. And so one first step in a crisis is simply to become comfortable with saying the naked truth about yourself to yourself out loud. And by the way, the persons who need to do this the most are perhaps those who we might imagine to be the most confident and the most sure. Because looking sure and perfectly confident are often ways of making one's mind busy and loud enough that we, we never allow latent doubts to come to the surface. Some of the most superficially self-confident are actually the least self-aware and often by design. But a righteous man can doubt. A righteous man can be unsure, and the righteous path through such doubt is, is never to lie to yourself or pretend that you feel something you don't. Godly Christians have sometimes felt uncertain about God's existence, about the meaning of scripture, or about the truth of a traditional Christian teaching. And the wise path is simply to name these sensations and to deal with them transparently and directly. And the irony, I would argue, is that it is precisely in that state that the Bible becomes more powerful, which is why I think it is especially powerful to those on the outside who have a sort of fascinated relationship to Christianity, maybe analogous to, a, you know, God-fearers in first century Judaism. And so what, what am I getting at here? What's the connection there? I think it's this. The Bible is written to address the human being that you actually are. It is not written to address the person that you fearfully tell yourself you must be or try to persuade yourself that you are. Indeed, those who attempt to, to seize confidence by will 
without pilgrimage when their gerrymandering finally fails themselves risk so forgetting how to hear scripture afresh outside of their ideology that they never learn to sit as a true student of the word divine truth which is rather which, which rather reads us than we it to fail to know what it means to be to be read by scripture that is to feel exposed before it is to fail to sit before it properly it isn't just a collection of proof texts and aphorisms but it's vivified by the spirit and it's the word of a living god in any case to the risk side of the poll then i think the the first thing we can say is that we can and should live in the truth be honest with ourselves about where we're at and, and work from there and there's encouragement to be found in knowing that this can be a righteous way to move about our doubts as it turns out, that's also relevant for the intellectual honesty side of the poll, the side that, uh, that accuses the seeker of possibly being overly stifled and motivated by fear. If we are committed to, to self-exposure and nakedness before the truth, especially the truth about ourselves, then we will be committed to knowing the extent to which we are governed by fear or arrogance and, and the extent to which we actually know or even want to know if a thing is true. And so you need to tell yourself the truth about yourself, both to rightly navigate the risks of the doubting pilgrimage and to try and answer questions that you find arising naturally and spontaneously whether you like it or not, in your mind, as you, as you work your way through these questions. But there is a possible pitfall here, especially for those on the, on the outside looking in. C commitment to honesty with the self and with reality is decidedly not to bracket out God or scripture or others as dialogue partners in your search. I mean, in one sense, to do so would be able to to just be to beg the question at the get-go. If God is and is the rewarder of those to, that seek him, as scripture claims, then the human impulse to, to cry out to the ether in a crisis or, or the idea that God dialogues with us through his creation and through spoken words and through the intersection of those things in our own life and story uh, are instincts that arise from nature itself. We were created to speak to God and to be spoken to by him. And, and there are vestiges of this structure in all humans. The human, as it turns out, doesn't discover the world through a merely internal monologue of one's own thoughts and feelings, uh, but rather through the dialogue, which ironically just is the essence of being human. Many sages have pointed out that we, we discover ourselves and the other just as we, we know the other in knowing ourselves or in Calvin's peculiar inflection of this, we don't know God without knowing ourselves and our, or know ourselves without knowing God. And so a few comments about the, the importance of and the, and the spheres of dialogue as we work through these things. First, at least for Christians, even if you, if you wind up going through a, a patch in your doubt where it is difficult to, to read scripture or to go to church, maybe maybe that will be a, a kind of dark chapter in your story. Do not ever cease talking to God himself. And really this applies to everyone. People, people might be surprised actually how often atheists find themselves in prayer. As it turns out, it's actually not easy for human beings to never pray in some way. Uh, I think it was the sociologist Daniel Bell who told his rabbi at his bar mitzvah that he didn't believe in God and he was going to go join the Socialist League. Uh, the rabbi replied, you know, kid, you don't believe in God? Tell me, do you think God cares? Uh, so as it, as it turns out, God is perfectly able to work with a good atheist. And some of our, our more agnostic pals still find themselves talking to God despite themselves. Um, 
And in future videos, I'll, t I'll talk about the existence of God and how we might uh, argue for it and what reasons we have to believe it. And particularly, I want to talk about the problem of divine absence, because that's, that's of particular interest to me uh, and has become an especially big topic, interestingly, among some philosophers in the last decade. For now, uh, I can at least say that no agnostic or atheist runs the risk of anything harmful <laughs> if they take the approach that I'm laying out, which is to just talk to God, talk to your creator. Uh, it's worthy of note, however, that when I, when I encourage you to talk to God or anybody, insiders, outsiders, when I encourage you to talk to God, don't think I encourage you to speak to the, some projection of, of bad Sunday school lessons, right? It's, it's not that God doesn't, it's not that God doesn't transcend all propositions that you believe about him. He most certainly does, and that's good news, frankly, even for the most mature Christian, the most mature theologian, that God transcends all of our propositions about him. The point here, though, is rather that prayer is most possible when we're the most relieved from our projections about God. Pray to God as, as the one in whom you simply have being, to, to, to one who is to the one who is closer to you than you are to yourself, to the one who sustains your every breath, who, who is your, your, the, your maker, the maker of all things, and the, and the sustainer of you in each moment. Cry out to him and ask him to preserve you from deception and to guide your way precisely through honesty, through clarity, through your questions. And, and trust that he's no stingy despot but the one who is the gift of all gifts, as, as scripture puts it, the desire of the nations, who loves both to be found and by, who loves to both be, to be found by and to seek you. Heraclitus, you know, pre-Socratic philosopher, had this funky statement, uh, you know, nature loves to hide. And it's perhaps echoed in, in, in the Proverbs statement that, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to discover it. Uh, and I want to connect that to divine absence in future videos. But here's a basic postulate. There just is one God to whom all persons are immediately related. And so wherever you are relative to any final state in theologizing about God, and especially if you're seriously interested in the Christian faith. Just cry out to the ether, man, <laughs> in order to be heard by the ear of the one God, our common creator. There is much in reality to suggest that God is well-disposed and good-willed towards those who seek him. So ask him to reveal himself to you and to reveal yourself to you. And yet even here, there's a caution to be had. Given what was said about self-deception above, we also need to soberly recognize that many people think they're seeking God or God's guidance or think that they're being truly honest and are very deceived about themselves. This is manifest not only in the kind of monologuish behavior mentioned, I mentioned a few moments ago, but it's also manifest in, the, in, I think, the deeper tendency that that reflects. And that's this. Humans, humans have a tendency to reduce what is possible and plausible uh, to the largely non or pre-digested blueprint of one's own conscious instincts about how reality works and what it's like. Or, or said more tersely, humans all too easily lack the wise kind of curiosity and imagination. But, but nothing that is truly honest with and certainly nothing that is truly knowledgeable about all that reality is could possibly fathom that its vast density might be contained within the confines of my immediate imaginings and instincts. We were made to expand the garden, to, to cultivate and extend its boundaries. It is not even possible to be intellectually honest then, apart from being open to surprise. And precisely for that reason, that the honest soul feels the need of others to navigate the world well. 
to search for God in the box of your initial imaginings almost guarantees the outcome of finding an idol or to find nothing, which is really the same thing. Uh, the mental habits and attunement of soul that could possibly seek the living God necessarily wonders and reaches out of itself, out, out of itself into sources, persons, and the very person-mediating object of texts. Wisdom is constitutionally open to and listening for a word from outside. And this is why I think the exhortation to, to seek God and speaking to him must be paralleled with an exhortation to dialogue with scripture and the people who've been formed by it. You risk mere monologue in your prayer if you don't listen for, for God's response. And I'll, I'll talk in future videos about why I think the Bible is God's word, but for now, it is sufficient to say that if it just is the word of a living God, then God can speak to you through the word, no matter what your belief about the Bible is that you bring to reading it. So, so read it and let it work on you. It, though, though it's funny, I think it's actually Christians, ironically, for whom, for whom it might be especially difficult to approach the Bible in this way. Uh, and that's because the Bible's so familiar to us. And, and so for Christians who are doubting, I think we, we need to be relieved of our tendency to an ideological and, and safely controlled relationship to the Bible. Uh, we, we, we've not read scripture rightly until we've, we've sat before it and been read by it and felt exposed before it, as I said earlier. We're not, we're not even talking about the Bible rightly if we're, we're talking about it as a, as a pre-interpreted known entity. For Christians, it's divine speech. It's a crucial piece of God's dialogue with humanity. It moves us. It's, it sometimes it angers us. It frustrates us. It confuses us. Uh, and that's to be expected. That's part of what prayer is for. Talk to God about it be shaped by scripture itself in your prayer and in your response to all of this. You know, think, think of these stories in scripture. Think of Jacob who, who wrestles with the angel. I won't let you go until you bless me. Think about how boldly Father Abraham spoke to God. And, and oh, I love this story. Think of that, that, that little story of the Syrophoenician woman who doesn't stop talking to Jesus after that first exchange, but, but keeps dialoguing. Uh, modern Readers might, might think Jesus is a bit snippy with her, but to, with this dear lady, but, but it totally misses the point of the passage. Rather, Christ, who's, who's really just the perfect rhetorician, uh, makes her an example of someone who pursues God beyond that first back and forth. And her faith in the heart of God is rewarded. The Bible is designed to reward this dialogue, and it is precisely adequated to it and is intended for it. So, so let the Bible move you to prayer and let your prayer move you back into the Bible. Do so with expectation that your heavenly Father is generous and that he's, he's more than you could ever hope and that his grace and goodness to you explode the mangy wineskins of your mirror and it is mere imagination of who God is and what he's like. And, and the last thing to say about this dialogical approach I'm recommending in your searching, I say with a bit of fear and trembling because I, I know that it can be sensitive. For some people, it can be especially difficult during a crisis of faith to relate to other Christians or to attend worship. And in the space of critical distance, other Christians too, too easily feel like, like mere ideologues who, who regurgitate deeply ingrained talking points and practical motions. And worship itself can feel like just a ritual into which we are projecting significance. <laughs> Even if we know that not to be the case, it's, it's difficult perhaps to shake ourselves out of feeling like and wondering if this is the case psychologically. And so there's a few things to say here. This is mostly for doubting Christians, but I want to speak in a moment about why I think there's something here even for, for outsiders to the faith. Of first importance, you need to remember that the church is full of people, and people are never simply the collection of their ideas. 
each human is a, is a distinct inflection of the divine image. And, and though there are, there are some qualifications to be given here, I would caution you that, that you be careful and don't no, be careful not to reduce people uh, to the shape of your kind of gut reading. Each person is a, is a whole world unto themselves. And God's truth can come to you through any human face, any divine image. And we have reason to expect this, especially in a godly community gathered around his word. To be fair, it is sometimes the cases that churches can be, can be rather toxic or that there can be pastorally irresponsible, or even, even sometimes that certain church leaders can be territorial or just crappy at dealing with people, and maybe people like you in particular. Uh, but let's calmly examine ourselves here a bit, and I'll qualify this and, and try to get back to that in a moment, but let's calmly examine ourselves, especially in light of the Bible's general recommendation that we be cautious about how we speak of leaders in the church. And so I think there's a few points here to, to just go over and caution ourselves with. So number one, first, admitting that there are circumstances which are toxic and probably not worth investing in, are there nevertheless churches in your area that offer decent biblical teaching and a decent community of loving folks? In the USA especially, it would be hard to live in any metroplex and, and not find something along these lines. So the most obviously th obvious thing to say is that you can stay plugged in with other Christians by just finding a relatively sane group of them. There are some insane groups of them, but there's plenty of sane ones. Go find one. Uh, you know, it's, it's frustrating. You know, lots of people opine about the church and evangelicals these days, uh, but they're simply reducing thousands upon thousands of congregations and pastors to just, the, the, you know, the handful that they've experienced. It's funny because we're not supposed to like stereotyping these days, but this is one area where it seems to be perfectly acceptable. And we need to relieve ourselves of that kind of thinking. Second, let, let's say you've got some wounds from church communities or leaders. You, you still need to ask yourself this, and, and this question does not presume the answer. But the question is this, is your wound proportionate Anyone who dwells among a community of people long enough is going to get hurt. It hurts to be in a family. And just as in the natural home, one's parents, leaders, or siblings will, will possibly sin against you or hurt your feelings on occasion. But is this offense in the ordinary range of flaws that can belong to a, to a basically godly person? If so, it may be worth considering whether or not you, perhaps, perhaps without even being aware, look to your leaders or brethren to fulfill a need for affirmation that you have and, and are placing an unfair burden of expectation then on them. And the relief to be had from this is to find your confidence and security in God, which will, will enable you to endure the ordinary sins of an ordinary Christian church and family. And ironically, it puts you in a better position to be, speak truth into their lives. People, people can usually tell if you're speaking out of an implicit neediness or if you're speaking to them for their sake. And while they always ought to listen for whatever truth there might be when you, when you speak to them, it's just true that people are far more inclined to do so when it is so obviously coming from a place of goodwill and for them. And as a side note, I suspect that placing psychological burdens on church leaders is a, is a, large, part of where, a large part of why there's a, an interesting dialectical tendency for those who've been hurt by the church to, to settle for some sort of leaderless or transient online community. I think maybe it works like this. Um, uh, because we implicitly demand the impossible of real faces, we replace them with surrogate relationships, faceless ones, where we cannot be disappointed even in principle. 
but the New Testament vision of one's ordinary church community experience just can't be reconciled with this. The church is a body. It is organic, but it is assumed that there are regularly cult a regularly cultivated set of embodied relationships, regular fellowship and worship, distinct gifts and roles in a community. Granted, maybe a couple of warts. Uh, but the thing is, is we need this. We need that embodied community, which is why the alternative will either leave us consciously unsatisfied or more dangerously atrophied in our desire for embodied communal love. How can we work through this? We need to make sure that our, our, our final ground of confidence and security and affirmation and love is in God. And we need to make sure that we ultimately fear him alone rather than men. Of course, we want people to like us. We all want that. People who say they don't want that are lying or don't, aren't even aware of themselves. We all want people to like us. And it's hard to be criticized. It's hard to be in tension, especially with leaders uh, or with other people. But, but our most basic sense of identity and spiritual stability must be rooted in the awareness that of, of God's perfect heart for us. And upon that foundation, we must, we must be able to see the gifts we have in a way that is not wrecked by the occasional dismissiveness of men. None of that is easy, of course, but I think it has to be our goal. And ironically, it is precisely by doing this that we can both endure man's ordinary sins and we also put ourselves in a, in a better place to hear when God might be speaking truth to us through other humans, especially honorable leaders. Fearing God and God alone is, is so far from being inconsistent with, but rather demands that we be expectant and ready to hear his truth spoken to us by any human being, and especially by godly leaders who we have reason to think intend our good. And third, I, I think one thing that is, is so easy to forget in the moment of a crisis, as I, as I just briefly mentioned, is that, is that you yourself have gifts to give the church. All who belong to the body of Christ, really belong to the body of Christ, are supposed to be in the body of Christ, have been given gifts by Christ through Spirit. And, they, and they've been given to you because they're useful. And in, in closing yourself off from a, from a concrete community, it's not just your loss, it's their loss. Giving gifts, of course, need not mean any, you know, anything fancy or particularly noticed by men so long as it's noticed by your heavenly father and it benefits its immediate recipients, you really can rejoice and find dignity that you're, that you're bearing a burden in this world and helping to be a part of the healing that is to be found in a concrete body. And the, and the converse of this is true as well. Ordinary dwelling with ordinary Christians is sometimes hard, but it's also part of your healing. Uh, we can't become whole without it. Moreover, we are not healed, and this is, this is important to say, we're not healed simply by showing up to the doctor's office, right? <laughs> we have to actually receive the medicine. We have to open ourselves and participate. And, uh, you know, I'm not very good at this, and I, I can tend towards passivity and worship and in giving my own gifts to others. And like you, I am in training <laughs> to lift up my voice, even when I don't feel like it. But, but you and I both need to cultivate active worship. It's not always going to go well, and you'll probably screw up a bit, but God knows you, and he sees where you're at. Jesus saw John where he was at, and he saw the Syrophoenician woman where she was at. But, but be in the game of trying to give everything God has given you to give in praise or lament or invocation in the context of his church. Our healing is not just found in, in individual relief, but in collective worship, in paradoxically participating precisely as ourselves in what nevertheless becomes a, a single collective offering with others. 
we were made for such worship and must train for it. It's no small part of the eternal bliss that we hope for. And fourth, I want to clarify that that I don't say any of this simply to scratch any status quo itch. I don't think this means that you need to just hold your nose at crappy pastoral care, or just mumble, it's fine, it's fine, when you're, when you're surrounded by what amounts to a big gospel-impoverished social club. Well, that just gets back to point one. There just are places that aren't like that. There are, there are many, many good and humble ministers, loving churches who care about people and try to honor the Bible and center around the gospel low-key, modest, and faithful churches. So, so find that for yourself, but make sure that it cares about what God actually means in Scripture, because you need it to care. Fifthly and finally, you at least need to be responsible and honestly ask yourself, even if the answer is no, whether or not your feelings about the church are, and, and about people in the church whether your feelings about the church and about people in the church are a result intentionally or not of, of a kind of numb or atrophied psychological state. And, and that can be the an unintentional response to various pains for which counseling might be a, a wonderful aid to work through, but it can also just be a function of doubt itself. Uh, what am I getting at here? Crises of faith are a space of clarification but they are also a space of distortion in some ways. On the one hand, a crisis can be, can be fairly helpful in giving you a critical distance from your ordinary beliefs and habits so that you can take a fresh stare of where you're actually at relative to them. That is to say, you can especially get clarity about yourself in a crisis. <laughs> but this distance and numbness can also distort our perception of the world uh, on various registers. And this is why the, the distantiation of a crisis, useful and as important as it may be for a time, is meant to end, if, if we're healthy and trying to be well-adjusted, in a sort of reattachment to the ordinary, because it is only in the rhythms of the ordinary world that we're fully engaged with reality on all its registers. What is needed then is to take a, a renewed self-clarification back into a world to which we are committed to remain attached. And this is why it is especially important to cultivate attachment to people in the space of doubt, and why it is important to remain in a body of Christians during a crisis. Moreover, the, the more we retreat from a community of persons, the more it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, the more robotic and inhuman they're going to start to seem to you. But that, that reflects you in some cases, or it might, it might at least reflect you more than it reflects them. And so maybe, maybe sometimes as the kids say these, as the kids say these, as the kids say these days, maybe sometimes you can't even, uh, but, but I'd encourage you to be committed to evening as, as much as possible. Even if for now, that just means prayer that God would enable you to try and even. He does love you and he's for you and he can help you. And there are churches out there that, that, that can love you and care for you. If you decide to be open to surprise, I suspect you will be. If you open yourself to surprise, you'll be surprised. And in a somewhat unanchored state, you really need to be anchored in a community where most persons live in, in plain, vanilla, ordinary, and basic spiritual reality. If you let it, being around them will, will be a constant source of reminder. And if you listen to people and have serious conversations with them, you'll be surprised how, how insightful and helpful ordinary faithful Christians can be. And you'll even be surprised, I think, how not alone you are in this. It might even be, and you might even be fascinated to see in how many peculiar and distinctive ways people have worked through similar questions and have things to say that aren't just talking points from a book, uh, but, the, but they come from it, a peculiar and really interesting perspectives. Uh, so, so seek and find a community like this as much as you're, as you're able in, and also give what you have to give to it as well, including the gift toward them of, of charity 
in enduring, hoping, and believe all, all things concerning them. It might seem like none of this has much to do with outsiders considering Christianity, but as it turns out, that's really not the case. The New Testament very frequently assumes that an enormous a part of how the, the church grows is that the Christian community is attractive. Most of our access or most of our impressions of the church these days, unfortunately, come from, from bad media depictions, maybe, you know, some crazy relatives you saw over Thanksgiving or Christmas, and a lot of online chatter about, you know, abstract communities or, again, you know, sort of evangelicals these days or whatnot. But it's, it's really instructive to get to know a group of local Christians who are pretty ordinary, right? But but who love Jesus and love his word, what he really says in the word. They don't you know, reduce his word to you know, something they already think. Uh, and are serious about following him, even at personal cost. And who, who try to love one another and try to love others well. Find yourself Christians like that. Put yourself in proximity to the, to the word and to the people of the word. And, and, I, and I really suspect you'll be surprised and get to know them. It's interesting, you know, get to know them at various stages. Talk, talk, for instance, to, to some of the elderly and talk to, to seasoned adults raising teenagers. Talk to a handful of humble ones and maybe a handful of super smart ones, uh, and you'll be able to get a sense of what it is that you're considering. And what do I mean by that? Christianity isn't just a set of doctrines, but involves belonging to a people. Uh, and part of what makes it vital is actually seeing and belonging to the inner life that is that people. And so go through as many motions of worship and life as you can manage with these folks, even if just provisionally and sure, maybe with a little side eyes and a little suspicion that's going to be granted if you're coming from the outside in. But just find a place that's sane and really believes the Bible. And isn't overly scalpy about you, perhaps, but also is, is available to work with you through, uh, as you go through things and as you need it, as, you're, as you have these questions. And I think that for those who are inclined to look hard enough, there's probably something helpful out there for them. So, right. So let's summarize everything we said in just space of a minute or two. First, it's, again, it seems like the most healthy method of working through one's doubt, which also turns out perhaps to be a, a good method of working through one's curiosity about the faith, is to be, first of all, just in principle committed to telling yourself the truth about yourself. And this includes both recognizing your doubts, but also recognizing the limitation of your vantage point and the manner in which your, your own sin can trip you up in the process here. But given that, freely dialogue with the public and common world and with the scriptures. In all cases, know that reality is both dense and wide and follow the trail where it leads. Moreover, take this journey with God, reliant on his goodwill to reveal himself to those who seek him. And in doing this, don't project upon God. He's the I am. He is radically other. He is way more other than you think, <laughs> but he's also near you. And his being for you is not to imply that he can be reduced to some kind of hallmarky emotional mental image. Rather, God is, God is awesome in the technical meaning of that term, awe-inducing. And, and to know him and to be know by, known by him is to, is to stand before a God who's also our judge, who is also the object of holy fear but who is a, a loving God, rich in mercy, as testified by his constant provision for and sustenance of us. And I think when you get in scriptures by much more than that. So to, so to say that he is no hallmark God is not then to just say that he's not intimate. Rather, of course he's intimate. Rather, a relation to God is more intimate than sentimental depictions suspect. And for precisely that reason, our relationship to God is not merely comfortable. For a fallen and finite creature to, 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 to be truly known by a loving, but also by a holy and perfect creator is to have a complicated relationship. <laughs> 
to walk with God is both to be comforted and rested in a very deep way, but it is also to sometimes be agitated and to wrestle with one who would see us grow out of our, our myopic and self-protective imaginings. Walk with God as with a father and, and, and a holy other friend, but know that your, your divine companion would see you healed. And to be healed, especially in a relationship to him, which is, which is the chief healing that you need, involves some pain. To know him is to be relieved, but it is also to be exposed and to be forced to reckon with oneself. It's to, to walk in the truth, is to walk in the light. And, the, and then finally, by way of summary, to whatever extent it can be managed, Cultivate an attachment to, to an embodied group of local Christians who can help anchor you in those dimensions of reality from which you might be a bit cut off at the moment. Or for seekers who, who might be the lived truth for you, the, the, the X factor that makes the line between the way of Christ and simple reality, the reality increasingly blurry precisely because your vantage point grows rather than diminishes. And then... Uh, as the kids also say these days, just do you. Uh, in chariots of fire nomenclature, run and feel his pleasure. Rest in goods, God's goodwill. Ask him to preserve you from error and seek his face. Ask yourself and be honest about whether or not you want to know the truth of God and the way of Christ. And if you do, trust that God means for you to find him, to train you in trusting him and trust that he can minister to you precisely by means of your legitimate questions rather than by circumventing them. What I, what I hope to do in future videos is, is walk through various elements of the Christian faith or, or various questions that get asked in our modern context and to take doubts that arise from them very, very, very seriously. So together with you, I want to to think about and feel the intellectual and existential pressure of these questions. And then I hope to, to talk through them, relying on both scripture and, and general revelation in a way that I, that I pray will help you in your, in your own pilgrimage with God. But until next time, from one human face to another, farewell.